I know that nobody that's ever reached a certain level of success has ever done something that when they decided to do their idea, everybody else told them that it was normal. If you're doing something that everybody else thinks is normal, the limit to what you can achieve is normal. So I was like, this is good. This is the How to Live a Cool Life podcast, a show that taps into the minds of creative, driven, successful people to find out what makes them tick. If you've ever wanted a blueprint for dominating life, well, this is pretty close. Here's your host, Phil Mackey. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the How to Live a Cool Life podcast, a blueprint for life domination. This podcast is all about pulling back the curtain and finding out what drives successful people, getting to the core of their process. You can always find show summaries and other items at howtolivecoollife.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet or given us a ratings on iTunes, be sure to do that as well. We would very much appreciate it. And you can have access uh, as a subscriber to, to all 15 episodes right to your smartphone or uh, whatever device you may be listening on mobily. For this episode, I sat down with Alec Torelli, an entrepreneur, world traveler, and one of the best poker players in the world over the past decade or so. From a selfish standpoint, this conversation really resonated with me just because of my own poker background with the Mid-States Poker Tour online boom of the early 2000s. Alec is on a whole different level, though, when it comes to poker. He's made millions of dollars throughout his career. And on this episode, he tells the story of how poker initially hooked him and how his life has evolved in and around the poker table over the past 10 years or so. I think my favorite part, though, of this episode is Alec talking about why being normal is actually a scary thing for people with aspirations and people with drive. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation, wide-ranging, not just about poker, but life and traveling and other things, with Alec Torelli. Much different degrees. You and I both have poker backgrounds, and I mean, it's it's been kind of your main lifeline for for a number of years. And I, I want to start off with how did you get into poker? What tell me the story about what hooked you into becoming maybe initially just a casual poker player, if that's the way it turned out, and then eventually what what fully hooked you into playing poker? Well, that's a great question. I was pretty much hooked in the very beginning. I started playing poker. In 2003, like a lot of people of my generation, I feel like my story is very representative of the average story of a pro uh, who came up in my my specific time. And I just started playing during the moneymaker boom. I saw poker on TV. I was 16 at the time. So, of course, it was very impressionable, and I loved the idea that I could play a game for fun with my friends. And it just started out as a hobby where after school, one day, my friend invited me to his house and he says, Hey, we're having a five dollar buy in Texas Hold'em tournament with fifteen players and you know, just a bunch of guys hanging out and I got second in the tournament, I won like twelve dollars or something. <laughs> and I just kept playing poker, man. I I loved it. In high school I would play all the time after school and it got kind of serious. I mean we started to have like little mini economies where the people that I hung out with in my group started playing together. But then, you know, some people faded away and other people won all the time. And then we started to hang out with other groups of people in high school, like people that I didn't have access to outside of poker, right? Like I would never have hung out with people that were like the jocks, or I never would have hung out with people that were 
in from this ethnic background or these people that were, you know, doing this and that. The poker sort of brought us all together. So there was like everybody had this mutual interest. And I thought it was really cool that like the barriers of otherwise connectivity, especially in high school where people are pretty, pretty vicious sometimes. And I mean, I wasn't like, I didn't experience that at all. I was nice to everyone. Everyone was nice to me. It was, I, I got along with everyone in high school, but you know how people can be where like people judge and label everyone. And I thought it was really cool that poker brought a lot of different groups of people together. And I got to meet and hang out with a lot of new people. And of course I got to compete and challenge myself to be good at a game that I loved. And so we started playing in high school and then our group sort of expanded and eventually we started playing with other high schools. And so we created this, like, in my mind, it was like kind of like a little league where eventually the people got bigger and bigger and the, the people we were reaching out to got wider and wider. And I started to realize that no matter how much we extended the player pool, I was always amongst the best two or three. And so that kind of gave me confidence. And I had this like self-awareness very early on that I could always compete and win and shortly after that, I started going to casinos. I started playing online. And I always found myself competing with the better players wherever I was playing. And so that gave me confidence. And, you know, one thing led to another. And, you know, 10 years, 12 years later, here I am today. Yeah, that's such a – you bring up – for people who don't really follow the poker industry, the, the poker boom happened in 2003. You mentioned Chris Moneymaker, who I think it was a $35 satellite on PokerStars.com. And he gets in, and at the time, the $10,000 buy-in main event was maybe eight or 900 players. And after that, it got up to 6,000, 7,000 players a few years later. And I, I'm kinda, I, I started playing at Rounders is the movie that got me into it in 1999. And I'm a, I'm a couple Absolutely. years older than you are. And so we would, in junior high and high school, we would just play for quarters and nickels and dimes. And kind of the dealer's choice would turn into Texas Hold'em sessions. And so when the moneymaker boom hit, then it then online poker started to become a thing. But so many people played casually, especially now it's almost impossible in most states to get your money in and play against casual players. It just it's not as big as it used to be. But how did you then go from did you ever have an epiphany of I like playing poker, I'm a casual player, I know that I'm pretty good to I can make a legit living doing this. That's a pretty young age to 16, 17, 18, to, to really find your calling. Was there an epiphany where you, when you realized, wow, I can take people's money for a living, which is essentially what poker is? <laughs> Great question. So continuing on, I guess, with the, some of the story and that, that evolution is right where you're hitting on. When I started playing online in high school, I had a week where I won $3,000 playing online poker. And it wasn't like I won three grand getting lucky winning a tournament I won 3,000, like, actually just grinding the games every day. So I played 5,000 hands a day, and I just won every day. Excuse me, there's a car by going by. So I just won every single day. Um, also, along with that, I had some stepping stones that really helped me where I won a tournament, which gave me a lot of confidence, even though I know in retrospect a lot of it was luck. I still beat out 700 players in a $30 tournament, and I, ca- I won $2,500. So these sorts of types of things were happening to me in high school. I was making final tables of big tournaments on the internet during spring break. I won 12,000 or 15,000 one time. Uh, I split it with a friend, but we still were making a lot of money in high school. And so I actually remember the day that 510 No Limit Hold'em became available on Party Poker. And I wouldn't recommend this today, but a friend that I did school and went to the internet cafe and we started playing the 510 games. And I remember I won like, four or 5,000 that day. 
um, the first day the five ten opened on party poker. So I was having these like massive scores, and of course, you know, you're a little hot headed and somewhat delusional at eighteen. But that marriage of lack of responsibility that it just comes with every eighteen year old, where you don't have family and kids and a wife and bills, and you don't live in the real world yet, combined with my recklessness and a little bit of my <laughs> uh, my talent and a lot of my ambition was like sort of the perfect cocktail that I think you need to have to do something dramatic, like put your life towards something that a lot of people would think is a little bit reckless. But I didn't really see it like that. I saw poker evolving as other industries evolved. I saw it evolving exponentially, something like snowboarding. And I knew that we were at a point of market inefficiency. And I knew that market maturity was five or 10 years away because there was simply too much money to be made and there was too much lack of talent. So, in other words, the skill you needed to make, I don't know, $10,000 a week playing poker was three months of training, going from never having played the game before. Yeah. And so it was, it was too much money to be made too simply, and there was too many bad players that I knew this wasn't going to last. So I was lucky that I was young enough to be able to take a risk. I also had a little bit of the courage and the success behind my back for the amount of time I played to be able to execute on that. And so I remember I was playing 510 and 1020 at the time. I was my first year of SMU. I had a scholarship there and I got into a great school. I worked really hard in high school. I got great grades and it was kind of my dream to go there. And I always wanted to go away to college. I wanted to study business. I wanted to be a CEO, an entrepreneur. And I was doing that, but at the same time, I realized that the level that I could excel at in poker would plateau if I didn't remove other responsibility in my life. And that responsibility, unfortunately, was school. So I face a decision that I feel like a lot of athletes can relate to, yeah. not to like make some uh, ambitious comparison about myself. I don't really see myself like some amazing athlete. I'm just saying like it's it's one of those decisions where difference between the guy playing his guitar in his parents' garage or him being a rock star or the difference between a guy who runs a you know, four fifteen mile and the guy that's really competing to run track is is very small. And you have to dedicate yourself entirely to be a professional before you can become the person that you want to be. And so I feel like 90% of the people don't even allow themselves to embody that person and give themselves fully to their passion or their calling or uh, a business endeavor or their hobby of photography that they secretly know they can make it at. And I was like, you know what? I've made 50000 or hundred, whatever it was, playing poker. I'm 18. If I do this for a year, I remember we had a beautiful pool. We, they, they, SMU built this like $25 million sports facility. and I was sitting outside at this pool, like, you're not supposed to be doing that during class. I, I, I was never, I never went to my economics class. I would actually print out poker hands that I played online and study them uh, instead of going to my economics class. And I was studying them at the pool because, you know, it was nice. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, you know, if I put this much effort and energy into something and I give myself doubly to what I'm doing now and I'm already succeeding, the worst case scenario is that in a year, I'm going to be 19. And I'm going to be broke. I'm going to lose the 50000 I made. And I'm going to be in the same spot as everybody else here at school, except I'm going to be one year behind them. Yeah. But I was like, if I 
succeed at what I'm doing, and I and I and I crush it, right? Or or, or it goes not even as good as it can go because I feel like I wouldn't have expected myself to be where I am now. But I, sorry, there's a helicopter. <laughs> I, I I feel like you know if it goes even half as well as it could go, I'll be in a much better spot. So I felt like I had this massive upside with a lot of potential and not a huge downside. And so you know from a poker perspective, weighing the risk and reward, it wasn't that. You know, it was a little bit of a aggressive decision that a lot of people don't make. But if you really look at it, it didn't seem that risky to me. I was pretty confident at that point in, in my ability to execute and also my read on the industry. I felt like played a huge part in it. If I was coming up in poker today, I don't think I would have been as aggressive because I don't, I don't think that the market now is where it was in 2005. So I just saw this, this window and that entrepreneur business side of me said, you know, now or never, and I jumped. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can feel you on sitting in college class too. I, I, I'm thankful that having laptops in class in the early 2000s became a thing because you could just sit in the back, and I, I was one of the guys who would do this, just in the back, with six sit and go tables open, just grinding for an hour. I would hope for lectures to last an hour and a half, so I could sit there and play a full sit and go in the in the back of the room while the professor droned on a PowerPoint or something. <laughs> But I mean, my, uh, I did I did that a few times too. But then I would find myself stuck in a game with a massive fish, and I wouldn't want to quit the game because I was <laughs> playing against the fish when the lecture ended. And I was like, you know, then I just stopped going. <laughs> You're but. sitting there for the next lecture <laughs> and the next lecture after that. <laughs> so what what are some what are some of the most common questions you get when people outside the poker industry, whether it's adults or parents or family members or just people who don't know. People who look at it and say, wow, you're you're quitting school or you're devoting your life to gambling. Isn't that risky? What are some of the most common questions you get, and how do you explain the poker lifestyle to people on the outside? Well, I think you hit it on the head. The, the most common response I got to my decision was that I was crazy. And that gave me a lot of confidence because I know that nobody that's ever reached a certain level of success has ever done something that when they decided to do their idea, everybody else told them that it was normal. If you're doing something that everybody else thinks is normal, the limit to what you can achieve is normal. So I was like, this is good because maybe what I'm doing is crazy, but I'm, I'm either going to be a hundred percent or zero percent. You know, like every time you have a crazy idea, you're either going to be end up failing or you're going to end up doing something that, that, in retrospect, everybody thinks is not as crazy, which means that there's 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 a room for you know a massive upside, right? Like I'm sure a lot of people told. that um, again, I, I please don't think that I'm making any comparisons my, myself with any anybody else, but just to use an analogy everybody understands. Yeah. It's easy to see how um, Steve Bowser, Mark Zuckerberg could have done something crazy by dropping out of school to pursue uh, what they did. And again, I'm, I'm not comparing myself to those, those people, not even uh, not even a shade. But, um, but the fact that you could have something that everybody else thought was a little op- opposite maybe uh, made me think I was going in the right direction. So I was like, okay, that's good, because it means that not everybody else has seen the opportunity that I see in this industry. Uh, so that was definitely the most common response I got. And But again, that's, that's kind of like the 18-year-old <laughs> that, that always thinks that they know everything. Um, so that, that was one aspect of it. And then I think that the most common question I got when I 
so one of the things I started doing right after I, I dropped out of school to play poker is I started I started building up in my like biography, like when I talked to other people, the person that I wanted to become. So people would say, you know, what do you do? And I would say, oh, I'm a professional poker player. And I tried to take myself as seriously as if I was already whoever my idol was, right? Pick a, pick a professional poker player on the circuit in 2005, still humble, standing on the ground or whatever. I always tried to imagine that I was responding as like they would respond, you know, because they're not, they don't have anything tied. They're happy that they're successful and they're an ambassador for the game. And so I would always try and, you know, show my best light and, and embody this person, fake it till I make it, if you will. You've heard that a million times mm-hmm. and, and, and do that. And so the most common question I got right off the bat was, especially in 2005 when poker was not as understood as it is now was, can you make money doing that? Like, can you pay your, can you really pay your bills or like, do you actually make money or that that was the most common question. I think questions around money were the most common. Like right. what's the most you've made in a day? What's the biggest hand you've ever won? Or people just and assume I, that, I, Oh, you, you say you made a hundred thousand dollars. How much did you lose though? They never assume that you're talking about your net gain over the course of a year or something. <laughs> right. But it's also just like, when you say that you are a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a fireman or any other myriad of industries, people have an idea of what that means relative to the lifestyle that that person has, as you touched on earlier. So, but when you say you're playing poker, they don't know if you're struggling to pay your electric bill and the mafia is going to come and, you know, beat you if you don't pay them your debt or if you're, you know, on a private jet, they just have no idea where, you are on that spectrum and because they've never met a professional poker player or it's just not clear the lifestyle that a professional poker player has. So I think there's a lot of curiosity amongst people. And when they see that you're actually semi-serious about what you're doing and that you are taking yourself seriously and the way that you address and respond to questions is as someone who is a professional would do, they start to become very intrigued and interested and they just, I think are genuinely curious. And so I always found that it was a great opportunity to share with people the skill component of poker and help, you know, educate a little bit and explain to them how poker works and everything I can to be an ambassador for the game at that point, because, you know, you have an ability to touch and influence the lives of other people and help shape their perspective of your industry. So that was always something that I was really uh, felt privileged to do. I don't mean to simplify being a great poker player down to one. I'm sure there's five or ten different variables for, for people who become great poker players, but what do you think the number one most important thing is, whether it's a skill set or a personality trait, for being a great poker player? Uh, well, uh, without sounding hyperbole to the moon here, I'm going to say that the most underrated thing, and I think this is why I'm to address it first, whether it's in poker or most industries, is luck. And I think it's relevant to mention in poker because there's such a big luck component. And I think if you really want to achieve a certain level of something, there has to be a luck component no matter what you do. And I don't mean to say that poker is a game of luck. It's not. Poker is no more a game of luck than chess or tennis or stock trading or real estate investing. There's a luck element to all those games, even Tennis has an element of luck. If someone hits the ball on the net and it, it puts the net and then goes on the line, you can consider, be considered a lucky shot. But you can easily see how, over time, the best players will always win. And that's mm-hmm. a simplified analogy. Also, in stock trading, real estate investing, even the best players in the world, uh, the best traders in the world pick 
losing stocks, but they pick more winning stocks than losing stocks, so they make money over time. But to achieve a certain level of success at poker or anything, I think you need to have a marriage of luck and all the other elements that that require someone to be successful, uh, skill and, and all these things. But you need to be in the right place at the right time. You need to have the opportunity and the support of the people around you to to get there, right? You need to be if you're Mark Zuckerberg, you need to be born in a time when your ability to pursue your dream is accessible to you and that you're at Harvard or you're at a place where you can learn to code and you have opportunity and stuff. So, like, that's something that people just overlook too much in life. And I think people always attribute all of their success to the one or two skills that they have. And they don't, they're not quite aware as much as I think the, the luck element just influences you. Like I was born in Southern California. I was like able to pursue all these opportunities. And so that's something that I'm always really, really cognizant of and grateful for, especially in an industry where luck is a bigger part of it. But anyway, I, I know that that's not like super practical because of course you can't just say, well, you should just be lucky. And, <laughs> and if you're not lucky, you're never going to succeed in life, but it's just something that's overlooked. And I thought it was worth mentioning with the, uh, the element of luck in poker, but the skill set that you need to have, I would say, Work ethic is number one. I think whether it's poker or any trade that you really want to trade, skill, hobby, profession, sport, whatever, that you really want to reach a world-class level at, you have to be, uh, not not that I'm saying that that's where I am, but just in general, to really reach a, a level of excellence at something, you really have to have a hard work ethic. And I, they've done studies at Harvard, too, at Juilliard, where... They, they've concluded based on the talent of the musicians that there is no such thing as a, a, a gift that you're born with. It's the people, there's a, a super direct correlation coefficient between the people that work the hardest, put in the most hours, and the people that produce the best results. So there's, you can't compensate for that. You can have to work less than the person next to you because you have a higher IQ or something, for example, but you can't not work extremely hard at poker or anything. Uh, the second one, I think, is self-awareness and discipline and those other things. But I think work ethic is really the big one. Yeah, I, I want to get into some of the – well, I th- and it's funny because the things you're mentioning, they apply to everything. And if I could have asked you that question as a doctor, and you could have said, work hard, put yourself in the right spot with your hard work, and get lucky that an opportunity arises based on your environment and based on the work you've put in to get to that point. And, and I'll bring up Chris Moneymaker again because – Chris Moneymaker is the one who really created the 10-year, or call it a 7- or an 8-year poker boom. And a lot of, a lot of players of his skill set, which wasn't very good compared to the top professionals, let's say there were um, 500 or 1,000 players who bought in for the same satellite that had enough skill to win an 800-person tournament but uh, just maybe didn't get a card in the qualifying event. So it's, it's hard work, and he might not be the greatest example because I don't think his career played out to the level that, you know, people might might have thought in 2003 work hard right. put yourself in a spot to get lucky so that when you get lucky you can cash in at the highest level whether it's in poker or whether it's whatever your profession or or uh, hobby is right i believe yeah yeah i believe it was i think it was seneca who said luck is where preparation meets opportunity and we talk a lot about in the beginning i i elaborated a little bit on the opportunity aspect of it so people just take for granted that they are in born in the first world, that they speak the English language, that they're in good health, that they're 
from an affluent family, they take for granted all the opportunity aspect of it. And so they only focus on the preparation aspect. And so that, that's important. That's all you can do. You should not worry about what hand you're dealt. You should only worry about how you can play the card. So I don't want to say that, you know, if you don't have equal opportunity of everybody else, then you should just be doomed to failure. You really can only control whatever hand you're dealt. I think I was dealt a great hand in life. Some people were dealt better hands, some people were dealt worse hands. But uh, the, the control you have is over how you play it. And so, yeah, you really have to put all your effort and focus and, uh, and emotional energy into what you can control and just forget about the rest. So focus on the preparation. Forget about the opportunity. If you work hard enough and you put yourself in enough good opportunity situations, uh, that opportunity will come. You just got to be there and ready for it. I want to get into some of your some of your business stuff away from poker, and some of it I know blends into poker. I know you do some some coaching and poker coaching and life coaching and online marketing, and so I don't want to make any <laughs> assumptions, but I, I want you to tell me sort of the story of why you took a hiatus from poker. Uh, what, was there a burnout factor, and where did some of the other things? come into play here some of your other passions and some of your other business ventures so the shallow story is that i was just playing a lot of poker and i was pretty burnt out from from it i i had done a lot and i felt like i set out a list of goals that i wanted to achieve and i did i i did some things in poker that i was really like striving for for a long time and i put a lot of energy and effort into to doing that. And so when I, when I felt like I had reached a momentary uh, point where I was content with, with where I was in poker, I, I, I started to get, like, I stopped, I started to lose focus of like what I wanted to do next. And I didn't feel like, I, I felt like I was temporarily satisfied with my place in the poker industry, but I, I still kind of played a little bit just because it was what I did. And I didn't stop to like reset and focus on other things in my life that were actually important to me. So I played poker. I worked really hard. I did well. I allowed myself to free up my time because I found a way to make money playing poker and I could manage uh, the hours I played when I wanted to. And then once I had all this free time, I, 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 I sort of lost sight of the bigger picture. And I, I started to lose sight of like what I actually worked hard for, why I wanted to have an unconventional life with all this free time and what I wanted to fill it with. So I just kept being like, I felt like I was like kind of more of a hamster on a wheel, filling it with more poker hours. And of course it was great. I was pursuing more things in my career and doing well and whatever, but I felt like a part of me was kind of like not being tended to, right. It was being neglected at the expense of working more. And, and entrepreneurs, I think can relate with that. It's so easy to, especially in an industry where there's always something to do, <laughs> you could always find reasons to work. And so I would just keep playing and fill my time with playing, and I never really took time away from myself to do other things in my life that I wanted to do and I wanted to work hard at poker to accomplish. So I sort of got fed up with it, and I said, you know what, I'm going to take – one of the things I always wanted to do – my family's Italian by background. One of the things I always wanted to do was move to Italy and learn Italian and kind of like reconnect with my, my family background. And so when I was 23, I, I also – had a lot of things that were like keeping me like attached to my fast-paced life in Southern California and Las Vegas. Um, and you know, when you're young and you do well, you do things that are not like you know. I was I bought a really nice sports car. I bought an M6 BMW, <laughs> and I and I just had a lot of things that like 
I was identifying with, you know, and I, I got kind of nervous about that, that I was felt like I was starting to get, it's like my, I didn't possess my things. My things started to possess me, mm-hmm. you know, like I had to take care of my car and I had this. And so I sold everything that I had. I sold my car. I sold some jewelry. I sold some stuff because I just didn't want that attachment. You know, I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to be owned by anything. I wanted to keep the freedom that I worked so hard for. And I was like, wow, this is ridiculous. I'm buying my own, I'm buying away my freedom. You know, like I'm paying money for a physical item that is giving me less of the freedom that I work hard for. I was like, this is just insanity. Yeah. So I sold all that shit. And then I moved to Italy. I stayed there for six months. I didn't play poker during that time. I was just wanted to give myself space in my life to write, to learn Italian. I studied at the Gelato University. I learned how to make gelato. I just did other things in my life. I did a Olympic distance triathlon. I just did other things in my life that were like bucket list items that I thought were really cool that I wanted to do. And that was one of the first times I actually enjoyed my, you know, success in poker and, and, and the freedom that the, the lifestyle had built for me. I don't want to say the first time, but it was like, you know, taking something, it was doing something that you always say you'll do and that, you know, you wait till 40 or 50 or 60 or never and you don't do it. And so I, I took that time away to do that. And that was really that was really profound for me. You know, that really shifted the way that I looked at things. And when I came back to poker, I, I was, you know, recharged, but I also found a lot more balance in my life and my poker since then. Yeah. And I think, I think you hit on something. It's, it's pretty amazing that you figured this out at, at a young age. A lot of people get to be 40, 50 years old and I'm, I, I'm turning 31 here in a couple months. So i I feel lucky to have sort of realized the same thing that you're talking about, which is whether you buy another car or, buy another uh, trinket or gadget or clothing item it really that that is the definition of a greyhound chasing the rabbit around the track you're never going to catch it and you you can you can you can own 10 homes and you can be a multi-billionaire but ultimately you're not going to feel fulfilled unless you do it internally and yeah it's it sounds like you don't get fulfillment out of external things you get fulfillment out of out of 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 finding who the core Alec is, if that makes sense. Well, nobody gets fulfillment out of external things. It just takes some people longer to realize it, I think. And yeah. I was just lucky to to have, I was lucky just to be able, like, and, you know, this is one of those things where for really no credit of my own, I was just lucky to have been able to be in a financial spot where I could test out the market, if you will, in terms of like what things I can do that I found enjoyment in at a very young age. So it's like, I don't, I, I, I think that this is more of a luck thing than anything where I was like, well, some people maybe have to wait till 40 or 50 because they have to work a long time to make the money to buy things that society tells you you want or need in order to realize that's not something that brings you happiness or fulfillment. And, but, but by that time you're like 50 and then maybe you've worked so hard your whole life to, do this that it's like too much to let go of that because then it's like fuck I worked my whole life to do this thing and I realize it's not what I want and then like you're kind of like pot committed if you will the term we use in the poker world where the pot is so big and you've invested so much money that you can't really fold your cards even if you know you have the worst hand and so but at 19 when I bought you know, a nice car or whatever I had fun with it um, but you know it's still like in a spot where I was really impressionable and questioning the way I see the world. And I was lucky to be traveling to, I don't know, a bunch of different countries. I was in Australia and the UK and 
uh, Italy and whatever, and, and just traveled around a bunch to kind of like meet a lot of different cultures and ways of life, and, and especially a lot of people that are less defined by their uh, material than, than we are here in Southern California where I grew up. And so that, that those were all things that helped me along my way and that just were a byproduct of uh, the industry I was in. Yeah. I've got a few just sort of random questions to close just to fire at you. You ready? Let's do it. All right. Uh, you mentioned traveling and, and going over to Italy, and I know you've you've traveled all over the place, both in the country and different places around the world. What is the most important or noteworthy lesson that that traveling or experiencing a different culture has taught you? Great question. And immediate come immediate answer is, I think when I first started traveling, the first time I left the U.S. Well, I was younger, but the first time I left on my own. To, to travel the world and play poker full time, I was 18, and I always thought I went to a bunch of countries. I always thought that the ob- objective of traveling, what you're the sort of like the the reason for traveling, was that you see other ways of life, you see other cultures, you see other things, and you learn that the Japanese are a culture of respect, and the Italians are a big family ingrained culture, and the Australians are, you know, live and let live culture, whatever it is, right? And you learn about all these different cultures and you take some of that with you. What I actually think the biggest realization I ever had with traveling was not, and I don't want to take away from those lessons, lessons or trivialize them. They've all been profound in their own way. And I've learned a lot from them. But the, the real aha moment for me was not in going to any of the other countries or cultures as much as it was coming back to the culture that I came from. And being able to see the place I grew up objectively in a in a different from a different lens than I could see it before when I was only there. So being able to understand deeply how the Italian culture sees the world and then see some of the problems with the culture that I grew up in that I never was able to see before, or some of the things that I re- I never even realized I liked that I appreciated certain things I appreciate about my culture that I took for granted and other things that I realized that I didn't like that I was not able to see before. And I think that was coming back to America and specifically Vegas and California after I spent a lot of time overseas, uh, especially in the last four years, I I only spent about a month in the U S each year. I was living in Macau um, and Italy playing poker, mainly in Macau and my wife's family's from Italy. So I was a lot of time outside the U S and it was in coming back that I realized a lot of different things about the culture I grew up in that I thought were really difficult to see before. Yeah, I love that answer. It just it, it creates a an entirely different level of awareness that is impossible to to gain if you don't get that outside perspective. Who are three people, let's say, that have inspired you the most in life? Uh, okay, that's a great question. Tim Ferriss. I read the Four Hour Work Week when I was eighteen. And I was lucky to have made a decent amount of money at that time. And I realized quickly, wow, it's not about how much money you make. It's about how much time you have. Mm-hmm. And time is the real currency of wealth. And so a lot of people trade money for time and they accumulate a lot of it. But then they don't have what they worked hard for, which is the freedom to actualize the things they want in their life. And Tim is brilliant. He pioneered this idea. Now it's a little more ubiquitous, but uh, when he discovered it, it was, you know, it was, it was big and I was very impressionable and it was pounding me at that time. And I realized quickly, wow, it's so much better to make 
100k a year and have three times as much than it is to make a million a year and have a third the time of the guy that makes 100k because it's not about the money you make if you can simply make less money in music in the way that you want you can do all the things in your life that you want to do because most of those things don't cost a lot of money like for example let's say you love rock climbing it's not going to cost a lot of money it costs a lot of time so that was huge for me and tim ferris credit to him he was big profound impact in my life uh, i'd like to say my parents i know that's a little uh you know that's a little like everybody says that but i think that that's for me, has been huge. I suppose, by definition, if, if you if you come from a family and you're you know and you, and you are around your parents, if some people aren't aren't fortunate enough, then they would influence you the most just by nature, whether it's good or bad. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I'm lucky to have supportive parents, especially in a necessary profession like poker. Uh, but I, I know people probably want external sources, people that they can um, actually contact and relate to, and maybe take something from. So I'm trying to think of two others that are big for me outside that you know everybody in the world would be able to identify with. I think um, another person that comes to mind, I don't know if this is, it probably won't necessarily raise the biggest one, but another person that, that just popped to mind was uh, Paul Ben-Shahar. I read his book, Happier and Perfect. Those are two books on self-development, if you will, and, and really finding things that give your life meaning and happiness. And I also read that at the same time I was reading a four-hour workweek type thing, so I had this lifestyle construct aspect from Tim Ferriss, and then I had this fulfillment aspect from Happier, and so I could really understand what things I could fill my life and time with that would bring me happiness, but at the same time, how to structure my life to be able to find the time to do the things that made me happy, and this was like all sort of in my formative years, especially at a time when I was able to uh, create my own schedule and make a decent amount of money playing poker and start other businesses, and so that was, those, those, it was kind of like the perfect marriage of those two things coming together. Um, and then I think Eckhart Tolle was a big one. I read The Power of Now. Uh, I'm obviously big into self-development, as, as, as the viewers can understand by now. Uh, that was really good for like mindfulness and just staying present, <laughs> uh, gratitude, and, and those sorts of things. I think The Power of Now is, 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 is a great one as well. I'm sure there are other ones that are a little more diverse, diverse than these three that all fall within the same niche, if you will. Um, but... Especially, you know, I think they they will you know jive with your audience as well. To to steal a phrase from uh, from Tim Fair, I know on some of his podcasts he asked the question, "What book have you gifted the most to people?" And I, for me, it would probably be A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And yeah, that's another great one. I mean, it's it's one of those books I, I've probably given it to ten different people, and maybe five or six of them read the first fifty or hundred pages, and they just they don't get it. It doesn't make sense. They're either they're either living a life of external validation, it just doesn't make sense, or maybe it's not the right time in their life. But it can be, if it's, if it's the right time in your life to read a book like that, it resonates yeah. like no other book you'll ever read. Absolutely. And that's one of those things that you really, you know, also with people, right? You've got to come across them at the right time. And that's definitely one of those books where you can't just pick it up and read it like you can a John Grisham novel where it touches you in some way no matter when you read it. It's it's really you have to be at the right place in the right time. I've actually had another book like that, uh, Way of the Superior Man, by David Dita. That I read it once, and a friend that gave it to me, I told him my feedback, and he's like, "Look, read it again. You know, I, I you have to read it again sometimes." So I read it a couple months later, and I found it excellent the second time, and not good the first time. And I think that's one of those things that you really have to be in the mood for as well. That's another great read, by the way, for for your audience as well. Yeah. All right. If you could describe someone who lives a cool life, the How to Live a Cool Life podcast, kind of a kind of a vague podcast title, but who, when when you think of 
living a cool life, who's someone that comes to mind in your mind? I that's a good question. You threw me for a loop this one. <laughs> well, I don't know if I have. The thing is that I, I, I guess the reason I'm stuttering is because I think that superficially, a lot of people can fit this bill, but what I think is lacking in any sort of public judgment are the things that actually matter the most to me. So I think you could say that maybe if you look at my Instagram, I live a cool life or my YouTube, maybe comparison of the cool life, maybe Billy Joe Armstrong was the cool life. I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that could fit that depending on maybe Dan Bulgarian lives a really cool life. Mm-hmm. But it, it, I, I think that the real key thing is the relationships that you have. And, and I've been married now for a couple of years. So for me, that's, that's primarily my relationship with my wife and then my family. And I think those are things that you can't really quantify or understand through most mediums in which people, sorry, I think those are things that you can't really quantify or understand through most mediums in which people evaluate the life of another person. And that's generally social media or interviews or whatever it is where you're seeing these bite-sized, possibly premeditated bits and pieces of how they want the public to think about them and whatever it is, right? Where they're, they're, they're talking about a specific aspect that's highlighting certain things. And of course, everybody looks great. But I think if you look behind the scenes, that's really where you see if someone is balanced and has the things that are actually important to them at the center of their, their life and the center of their priorities. And those are the people that I really come to know and respect. So I think that that's, that's why I'm struggling to answer the question because I can't really observe those things accurately enough or deep enough without knowing someone behind the public curtain. Yeah, no, that's, it's a great answer. Um, hey, I, first of all, give, give out any, any information if, if people want to keep tabs on you or if they want to follow you on different platforms, where are the best platforms for people to follow you? Great question. And thanks for the plug. Uh, I'll be quick. I mean, alexrelly.com is my blog. And from there, you can connect with me through, uh, any social media. I'm on all of them, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, and YouTube, Alex Relly, on all of those. So I make it pretty easy. I do have a weekly YouTube show. I put out three, four videos a week about poker. I also have an Ask Alex segment, which is a little bit more about lifestyle and business and philosophy. I think that, that might jive with a lot of your readers. Uh, and then the hand of the day I release on my YouTube is I have readers send me interesting hands poker they play, or I share hands that I've played from around the world in, in some of the big cash games and tournaments I've played. And I break them down in immense detail in five or five minute videos. And I also put blogs up about them where users and readers can learn more about how to take their game to the next level in poker. So those things are interesting for maybe some of your viewers. And uh, that's, that's generally where you can find me um, online. I'm very accessible. I'm always connected with people on social media. So reach out, say, Hey, tell me, tell me on, uh, on the podcast. And I'll definitely uh, get back to you. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate it, man. I I think the the poker background resonates with me just personally, but I, I hope the listeners got a ton of value, and I, I really thank you for your time, Alec. Yeah, I appreciate it. Likewise, Phil, this was awesome, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be on the show. You have a good, awesome stuff, and so thank you for having me.